I always felt like it was important that whether it was Tona Polk or Nas or whoever it was at the time, you know, stayed in front. I mean, after I executive produced, it was written, which was obviously a lot of pressure because you had to follow up Illmatic. The next album that I made like that was the Mary J. Blige album, Share My World, which was the follow up to my life. I was working and managing her for a while. I mean, it was definitely a lot, but it was a trust. And the trust was always built around respect and knowing that I would work as hard as I can to help make you win. I'll do whatever we need to do for you to win. And I didn't care if people didn't like me as a result of it. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. What up, everyone? It's your co-host, Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. Talking with our guest, Steve Stout, it's clear that the best artists also need someone who sees all of their potential. As Nas's former manager, Steve helped to navigate label politics, form the supergroup The Firm, and build a hit-making bond between Nas and the Trackmasters. But it's the stories on how he convinced Nas to work with him that really takes my co-host back to memory lane. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As amazing as it's been to witness hip-hop's cultural impact, it's only right that hip-hop directly benefits those who help build it, which is why it's good to see that some CEOs in the business world have humble beginnings in hip-hop. Steve Stout is one of those businessmen. He's worked his way from the ground up. He's taken what he's learned from hip-hop and applied it to his other ventures. Steve Stout is living proof that if you let it, hip-hop could be your recipe for success. Steve Stout, the entrepreneur, the businessman, mogul, tycoon, <laughs> the commissioner, my ex-manager. I mean, this guy was my manager, man, when I, I didn't know nothing, man. Steve, tell us about it. Go into it, man. You're from Queens, New York. Was that one of the main things that made you pick him? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I you know, grew up in Queens, West Indian parents, and um, grew up loving music. I was always an entrepreneur trying to have a bunch of jobs and do a bunch of things. And everybody at, during that time in 1982, if you were 12, 13 years old like me, I feel blessed to be born in 1970 because my teenage years was like hip hop, MTV and wrestling. Like when those things were emerging, yeah. that was my teenage years. And I always wanted to be a rapper. 
a DJ, a break, a b-boy, something. Like I had those aspirations and I, and I watched a lot of uh, what was taking place in hip hop. I lived in Queens, in Hollis, Queens, Jamaica, Queens. So I would see LL Cool J at block parties and the Disco Twins and roller skating rink parties and see Biz Marquee perform and all those things. But then I realized at probably around 15 that I was definitely never going to make it as an artist or, or be a rapper of any sort, anything like that. You know, I, I, was, I was a business guy. And I will tell you that when I heard Halftime, I, I couldn't believe it. Where were you? Do you remember when you heard it or who played it for you? Yeah. So I was Kitten Plays Road Manager. And it must have been 91 or 92. I was at this conference, How Can I Be Down? I had gotten a single, a single cassette. You heard him on Live at the Barbecue and you knew the guy was dope. But there was a lot of dope rappers. Akinelli was dope. Mm-hmm. But when you heard Halftime, it just moved me. Like when you watch Rocky, you watch it and you want to start working out. Like <laughs> the two songs that did that to me, I will tell you, was I knew I had to be in the business. I got goosebumps right now. Is I heard Halftime and You Remind Me, Mary J. Blige. Mm. Those two songs made me know I have to be in this business. There's no way I can't be in this business. This thing, this thing talks to me mm. like nothing else. You know, that's something I has got on my radar screen and I was a big fan of him. And then, you know, obviously Illmatic comes out and it ain't hard to tell. And it was like, when I heard all the words past the margin, I was like, man, fuck this shit. I got to meet this guy. You chased him down. And I chased him down. I mean, I don't know. It's what I've done my entire life. I only know how to go through the front door. And through the front door is by any means necessary. If you can't find a back way in, then you just got to go through brick by brick to get to what you got to get to. I think that's something you've seen a lot of entrepreneurs. It's not unique to me. But in this special case, you have to get to Nas. And, um, you know, I went to Queensbridge, and the story's been told a lot of times. I went to Queensbridge asking, did anybody know Nas? And, uh, you know, put myself obviously in harm's way, running around <laughs> with Alexis, just knocking on, you know, mm-hmm. going up to people's hoods, asking for people like that. But, you know, when you really care about something or something moves you, you know, the passion sort of makes you do irrational shit. But at the same time, you you had a lot of clout because you were coming in. You're the manager of Kid and Play. Like, that's a huge thing. You could use that. That shit didn't mean nothing. That shit didn't mean nothing. That shit didn't mean nothing. No, man. It was like rap changed. It didn't change fast. But when Wu-Tang, Biggie, Nas, when that era, Snoop, when that came in, Everything that looked like Kid and Play and Will Smith was the worst thing you could actually be associated with. Wow. Because it was like a hammer. Hammer created an apocalyptic explosion. Yeah. It's like anything that sounded commercial was in the hammer category. Mm. People just didn't want to fuck with that. It didn't make a difference. It was very hard to even be good at that because if it was popular, it was a problem. Oh. And... You know, Nas, Biggie, and Wu-Tang, and like I said, that thing was emerging. So when I went to Queensbridge, it wasn't like, you know, I could bring up Kid and Play. I was managing these young producers, the track masses. Mm-hmm. They had a little buzz on them at that time, but really not enough that anybody would care about the manager of track masses. You know, that, that didn't trade yeah. <laughs> in the street. You could just say, yeah, I manage track masses. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Get, get out of here. I mean, did you just grab somebody off the street that you rolled up on or did you happen to know anybody in QB? Like, I really want to hear from Nas, from your side. How did you hear it? 
I heard it through the business. I heard this guy, Steve Stout, coming up. He's a great hustler. He's from Queens, and uh, he really wants to uh, talk to you about management. So it came to me that way, mm. and it also came to me. This guy was on my block. When I heard that, I really, really wanted to meet him. We were mm. already kind of set up to meet, but I don't know if he trusted the sources that were telling him that I was down. So like the go-getter that he is, he came on my block. I wasn't there. I heard about it, you know? They're like, yo, this big dude came through, man. We almost gave it to him, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, I like that. Mm. I said, that takes guts. That's a man with focus. That's a man who's serious. Did you have a manager at the time? Or someone uh, who was like a homie yeah. that was like... I went through management. I don't know at that particular time, you know, if I had somebody managing me, but I definitely needed real management. Now, I think you must have just fired that kid who was used to manage Hello, uh, Brian? Brian Latour. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Brian Latour was like, he was like a fake Jay Brown kind of guy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <He> yeah. Was, <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so I, I was at that point. And uh, Stout, he was more of hip-hop, closer to what I imagined my business partner would be like, you know mm. what I mean? And he knew, knew the assignment. When we got together and we talked, it was no nonsense. I've watched Rocky hundreds of times, mm -hmm. and I still feel the exact same way, like I don't know what's about to happen. I love fighting for the underdog. It is what burns me deeply. Do you feel like an underdog? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like I haven't gotten shit done. What? I feel like I'm an underdog all the time. Oh, yeah. I know it's weird. I really start to pay attention to the fact that it's starting to become weird that I see it that way, but I always feel like I haven't gotten anything done, and it's not like a cliche thing. I believe that it's not what you got done. It's did you optimize your God-given talent? Did you do as much as you can with the talent that you have? That was God given to you. And I feel like I have not done that yet. Because of that, I'm always feel like I have something to prove. And, you know, the underdog, like I got to get off the mat and I got to prove it. Well, I still feel like that every day. I watched you prove it to many people during that time. Hmm. I watched a lot of people sleep on him during that time. I watched a lot of people not really think what he was saying could be reality. Right. Because he saw what a lot of people didn't see. And that's how he became president of urban music at Sony Music yeah. Entertainment, right? I saw a lot of hate for him for the other executives, other black executives, other whatever executives, you know what I'm saying? He went from there to Interscope and brought me there to do a Firm album because where I was at, they wasn't understanding us growing. We were moving too fast. At that time, we were moving too fast in the hip-hop business for the hip-hop business. You know what I'm saying? You had pitched a super group well, and they, they said, no, that's not what we want from you? I don't feel like they were open arms for it. They already had me. So it's kind of bringing in this, this firm thing. And, you know, we needed more. And Steve went over there, and I saw a rift between Mr. Tommy Matola. Shout out to him. <laughs> I saw a rift between, you know, him leaving yeah. and going this way. And I said, how is this happening? This guy's the most sought-after dude in the music industry, and I'm watching him handle this stuff. So, were you the underdog then? Nas, you know, I don't, I don't remember. I can tell you things about yourself. I don't want to answer that question, but I can tell you things about yourself that you 
don't know how it looks from the outside. It's like when you hear your voice for the first time, you're like, damn, that's how I sound? Like, you don't hear it. You don't see it. Yeah. I didn't know what you just said. I never felt that. I was moving with purpose, and we had the idea. You kept on talking about the firm. You know, Biggie was starting to commission, and this idea of these groups. Right. This was a thing. Junior Mafia, commission, whatever. And everybody was, it was an idea that was forming of these collectives. Really, that's what it was, a collective. Right. And Nas had the collective kind of laid out. Nas, AZ, Cormega, and uh, Foxy. And, you know, he wanted to do that. And trying to explain that to Sony Music at the time just was impossible. At the same time, you're trying to explain the value of a Will Smith. You worked with Will Smith Uh on his music stuff there, Sony, which was huge. At the same time, he's becoming the biggest movie star in the world. And um, I remember you telling me some things about Columbia Pictures and Will, and they could have had first dibs kind of on him. Mm. So I think Steve explaining where everything was going, I thought it was amazing that he was able to deal with different people, different artists Mm -hmm. in different ways in the way he did. See, I, and I didn't, again, I don't, I didn't know that, that that was a thing. <laughs> he didn't know I was watching. <laughs> All I know is that we got shit that we got to do. Nas said to me, man, we got to get to Dr. Dre. He wanted Dr. Dre to produce on the album. Yeah. So, Mr. Info, I'm here. I'm a new manager. I ain't never managed an artist before. I'm a passionate guy. I'm a figure it out kind of person. Yep. And the first album that I got to make, the first album that I made, executive produce was it was written when we were talking about executive producers like i'm not a guy to just take credit for shit i didn't do i was there with this guy in all the sessions yeah helping pick the beats yeah finding the shit you know making me do rhymes over the i rule the world beat i gave the sample to the track masters you know let's go shoot the street dreams remix video you gave the sample to track masters for if i rule the world yeah well i rule the world was an idea The, the sample came Definitely was my idea. And then Nas and I had bought the Fuji's album when it came out. And we were working on the idea. And then she said that yeah. in the rhyme. Mm-hmm. Yes. She goes, if I rule. And we and looked like, at each other. perfect. <laughs> Lauren singing this shit. Oh, my. We were sitting in the car. We had the idea for it. Right. But we didn't know who was singing. Yeah. And then we were sitting in your car, the GS300, the yeah, white 100%, joint. 100%. <laughs> Woo! You fucking remember that shit? Hell yeah. We fucking... Looked at each other. She said, I rule the world. We were like, you've got to be kidding me. Wow. And we went after her. They were like 20 million. Uh, It wasn't about going after her. Lauren always had a great respect for Nas. Mm. The Fugees always loved Nas. They came up together. They toured together. Facts. Even though she got big. In fact, she loved Nas so much as an artist that she flew from Italy to New York to shoot the video to fly right back to Italy. Wow. On the Concorde. Oh. Yeah, they flew. They, they were on tour in Europe. She flew just to shoot her scenes in New York to go back. She loved Nas, and she was, you know, that's Miss Hill. She was always Miss Hill. Like, yeah. you know, to get her to move, you better get your pack of lunch because yeah. it's going to be a minute. <laughs> Remember what your pitch was? Stout. 
Patriots. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nas and I still speak about the pitch. I don't really have, Sinfo, I never really have a pitch. I speak from the heart. Mm -hmm. And I speak with a sense of clarity and purpose. So it wasn't like a da dun dun da dun dun mm -hmm. I'm like, yo, man, you should be the biggest star in the world. You're a good-looking motherfucker that can rap his ass off, and these motherfuckers don't want you to be big. Mm -hmm. And you hang around people that don't give a fuck about you. And those were truths. You know, even early on, I, I remember meeting you the first time when I was at Vibe, and I think that the impression that I had was that this is the ultimate corner man, the person who is going to really see you for the biggest thing that you possibly can be and speak with the confidence that's going to give you confidence. So I think that that was probably something that you were looking for, right? Like, you got to learn from somebody, especially if you're young in the game. You may think you're the hardest, baddest out. Right. But, like, who can you learn from? Right. And it didn't exist. Yeah. Us coming up, that era that he talked about Wu-Tang and Biggie and all of that, there's a few people. There's the people that was with Big, the people that was with Wu, and then there was me. Hmm. I mean, I'm probably leaving out somebody else and stuff, but the important thing is that I found a business partner, I found a manager that can allow me to work, and then him knowing exactly what needed to happen, or we were done. You're right. And I think to him, he thought it would be like, you know, the greatest thing in the world to make these people that were not trying to see me win to burn them, right. <laughs> you know, because how dare they? By the way, I, f I feel like that right now. I still feel like that. Yeah, that's him. You know, we, this is a movie, man. You talking, it could go for three at four hours. I want to cut into a few other things. You signed <laughs> Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, to a record deal. That was controversial at the time because I was on the media side being like, what is happening with hip hop? Now it's just about celebrity. But then you come to realize how can you discount this man who clearly loves hip hop so much and he's young and he has the energy and he has the charisma. So I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what happened was Shaquille O'Neal put out an album with Platinum. Yeah. Yeah. I think two of them. Okay. And people was really fucking with it, too. Yeah. It wasn't like some bullshit. Right. Look at the production and the artists on Shaquille's first album. Biggie. You'll be shocked. Yeah. yeah. Wu-Tang. Yeah. Videos. Yeah. Did he, they do the song No Hook with him? And, and it was uh, Wu-Tang with Shaquille O'Neal. Just so you know, Shaq was working with the best of the best during that time. And, you know, I had heard that Kobe Bryant, he had gone to the prom with Brandy, that he loved rap, and he was in a rap group. And after Shaq sold the records, I sat, I spoke to him, and he's like, like, he just thought that he was better than <laughs> he's Shaq. like, I could do that. that. And Shaq could do it. I mean, he's always felt like that. Mm -hmm. He was better than that. And I signed him, and he was part of a group. And then, it, you know, him and Nas spent time together. He would hang around us. Yeah. Actually, he met Vanessa on the set of the video. The first video that we did, he met his wife. God bless. Yep. God bless. Steve, you was uh, handling a lot of stuff. Like you said, sometimes we see things that your friend doesn't see, right? Yeah. So you was handling me, Kobe, Will, so many other artists, wearing a lot of hats, man. You had the track masters. People like Puff, people like Dre, whoever was killing it in the game on the music side, you were doing it. Because you had me, you had track masters, and you had, so you were running a whole music movement the same way or the similar way. Because track masters did records for everybody, mm -hmm. R and B records, remixes, everything. So track masters, myself, Steve, was a movement 
as big as those other ones that yeah. were out there. But because Stout wasn't on the front holding a microphone because he wasn't doing a lot of that, you didn't see him as that. We didn't have, it wasn't like one label name that we were moving with. Well, but arguably we, a lot more powerful to do it that way because to be able to pull strings from behind yeah. allows the people who are supposed to be in front, stay right. in front. You know, that caused a lot of problems for other dudes to be always kind of That's why I didn't dipping. like that. Yeah. I always felt like it was important that whether it was Tone or Polk or Nas or whoever it was at the time, you know, stayed in front. I mean, after I made, you know, executive produced, it was written, which was obviously a lot of pressure because you had to follow up Illmatic. The next album that I made like that was the Mary J. Blige album, Share My World, which was the follow-up to my life, which was crazy, you know, <laughs> wow. to pull all that stuff together during that time working with Mary. You know, Mary was transitioning during that time from a lot of the stuff she was doing early on with Uptown and, and Puffy, and she was making this music on her own. And I was working and managing her for a while. I mean, it was definitely a lot. And these are people that are friends to this day of mine, and we grew up together. And we learned a lot together, but there was a trust. And the trust was always built around respect and knowing that I would work as hard as I can to help make you win. I'll do whatever we need to do for you to win. And I didn't care if people didn't like me as a result of it. Yeah. I used to wanted the people who I work with to like me, but I didn't care. I have no concern on how the opposition feels. That's not my problem. Well, one thing that seems very clear is that Stout, you were a, a music exec, let's say a label exec, you know, you're president of this and whatever, running these different labels. But the thing about the real, real icons of hip hop is that they really made their mark when they were able to do more than just music, whether it was Ciroc or whether it was like investments, you know, Beats by Dre. And you were the one person that really saw a vision that was bigger than just a music label. And that the money and the power and the status was really in going outside of just music. So how do you think that you were able to be like sort of more important than a record label? I learned as a result of you just watch the impact that the music videos and the clothing and the words would affect people. And I felt like there's a much bigger world out there than just selling this album for $16.99. There's so much more we could do because our impact is so big. You know, Michael Jackson never sold the glove, and he should have. That's how I felt. Mm. And I wanted to be part of that. And I felt like I found the advertising industry, and it was a very tough thing for me to do, but I wanted to be able to use the world of brands to work with hip-hop, music specifically, as a way to penetrate youth culture, as a way to ingratiate themselves to youth culture. Not just hip-hop, the Justin Timberlakes, all of that. Yeah. yeah, it was youth culture. And every time they tried to do it, it was always bad. Like, you'd see a TV commercial with fake rapping in it. Yep. Or, like, a fake hip-hop beat, that kind of stupid shit. And I was like, oh, I could really do this in a real way. Yeah. Now, it was a leap of faith to do that because you have to bet on yourself. But I was also coming to the conclusion that I was no longer uh, available to be an employee. Like, I, was just, I just got <laughs> out of that mindset. I couldn't work for a record company no more. You know, I had gone to Interscope, and Jimmy Iovine is, like, definitely one of my mentors, if not my mentor, I would say. But I couldn't, I could no longer be locked into just running around and making albums for artists. Hmm. I felt like I could do more. And the other thing at that time, I'll tell you, 
that was also part of that decision was the music business started getting really messy. All of the street guys thought that the music business was the street. So it really became less business and like it became street shit. And, you know, I'm not afraid of nothing, but I want to be in business. Hmm. I'm a businessman. I don't want to be in a business in which it's littered with a bunch of fake business guys that are just street guys posing as, you know, music executives. And it started becoming a lot of that. Interesting. So the combination of yeah. my desire to do something bigger yeah. and the business turning into that kind of shit yeah. was like, man, I, I, I'm going to move on. I watched him walk away from the record industry years ago, and I thought he was crazy. But he was betting on himself. Yeah. And I also admired him for that because I said, man, that's what I'm on. I'm that kind of guy. I can do it. You know, um, Steve Stout, are record labels dead? I think record labels have to change. I think they have a bad reputation and they have to change how they do their practice. I think going forward, record labels will be owners of catalog. The catalog that they scooped up for all the years since the inception of the industry, they will own that. But going forward, artists will own their own rights. And those rights is going to be something that they can pass on to their kids or their family or sell it when they choose, but not sell it at the inception of their career hmm. as they're 18 years old and quote unquote want a record deal. So I think that will shift. And that's the reason why I started United Masses to help stimulate that shift. And I'm proud of that chapter again, of my career. It's the ongoing pursuit of my potential as an executive. I got to take the things that I've seen, apply my wisdom to it, and then bring forth change. And I think that United Masters exists because of my desire to make that change. You changed the game with branding, and you told us about it with your book, The Tanning of America. Hip-hop created the culture that rewrote the rules of the new economy. That was right on. That was right. Now you're changing the game in the music industry. Will there be a book on that? I wrote the book, The Tanning of America, as we all sit here right now, having this conversation, knowing how important it is that hip hop culture has impacted the entire world. Mm -hmm. Hip hop culture, the way people dress, the way they speak, the way things are marketed and sold, the, all of these platforms that exist because hip hop music brings life to it. That when our kids read the history books, and the world is the way it is, that hip-hop doesn't get the credit for the shift that it caused. I didn't want that to happen. That's why I wrote the book. And the book was something like, it was a timestamp. This is exactly what happened. No different than any great painter painting something. So you look at it, you go, oh, that's how the world looked back then. I wrote that book that we could always refer to it and know the role that hip-hop played in the tanning, which is you know bringing a mindset of people together that's the word tanning. That's the, the way I framed it. And I've said in the book, and I believe it, that hip-hop culture has done to bring more people together than anything since anyone, since Martin Luther King. I really believe that. Bong. Yeah. Entrepreneur, advertising executive, philanthropist, author. What's next? I'm missing a few things there. <laughs> What's next? I mean, I'll be honest with you, Trim, trying my best to balance that and be a great father, be a great husband. And that's... Nice. You know, doing all that, you have all the ambition to do all that, and it's good. And again, it's a gift to do that. And, you know, you got family, you got to bring those same kind of values and discipline to your family because, you know, the next generation has to carry the torch. There it is. But I'm not anywhere close to done. I feel like an underdog. I still feel like I got a lot to prove. And I'm excited. I'm excited about 
the prospects ahead of me. I love the fact that, you know, I love Nas. And uh, love you too, bro. Having a friendship and a relationship that's, you know, 26 years. And you can look your friend in the face and say, man, I love you. We've been through so much together is something that you cherish. So being able to even do this podcast, I can speak to him. Every time we speak, it's a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I love interviewing like this experience with my friend. He's my friend. Like he said, 26 years of friendship. We've been through it all. We laughed together. We cried together. We did it all. Fought together. You know what I'm saying? And and we're still here and we get together and, and it's like he said, we have the talks and, and there's the street side that he was getting ready to get into that. That's, that's a whole nother hour. There's that's certain, why you cut it off. You're yeah, like, yo, 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 yo. There's, there's certain <laughs> things that we saw and, and got through yeah. on all levels that would be a whole nother hour, man. Yeah. Steve, this is, uh, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. You put a phone call to the side just for us. I'll be out the backyard soon. I'll bring a bottle. Love you, man. It's great to see you. Thank you. I love you too, brother. On next week's episode of The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop, we talk to Joey Badass. The way I saw it at 17 is like, yo, I don't want to compete with nobody in my generation. I want to compete with the greats. Like, I want my shit up there on that level. You know Mm. what I'm saying? Like, because to me, that was top tier rap. That was like immaculate. And that's what I wanted to be. The 1999 concept, even though it was 2012, I looked at 1999 like being the last year of the 90s or the golden age. And I looked at myself as being the last hope. From Spotify, the executive producers are Gina Delvec and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. From Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana, and associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening.